This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, what's next for Brazil as former President Dilma Rousseff moves out of the presidential palace after her impeachment? What's next for a country gripped by corruption scandals and fighting the Zika virus? The epicenter of the pandemic was once Brazil, but where are the front lines now? We'll talk to one scientist battling the virus. But first, Jim Singer has more on Zika and our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A proposal to provide more than a billion dollars to fight the Zika virus fell victim this week to politics in the United States Senate. Democrats in the Senate said the bill was unacceptable because of provisions added by the U.S. House of Representatives. Harry Reid, the Democratic minority leader, took to the floor of the Senate to complain about how the Zika proposal had been hijacked. Their legislation exempts pesticides spraying from the Clean Water Act. It cuts veterans funding by $500 million, half a billion dollars. That money was being used to speed up the processing of veterans' claims. Yet it rescinds $543 million of Obamacare money. It strikes a prohibition on the Confederate flag. So in, in effect, the Republicans in the House decided they would send back this bill loaded with poison pills. The director of the U.S. Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases expressed disappointment that the funds for fighting Zika were stalled in Congress. He says his institute is working on three possible vaccines to fight the disease, which can cause birth defects. In the U.S., the territory of Puerto Rico is the hardest hit, with more than 13,000 cases. Health officials are also worried about the spread of the virus in Florida, where they believe local mosquitoes have spread several dozen cases in the Miami area. The current world pandemic of Zika began last year in Brazil and now has affected 63 countries. We'll hear more about the Zika virus in Latin America later on this program. The political fallout from Donald Trump's visit to Mexico is resonating south of the border, with Mexico's finance minister paying the political price. Mexico's president fired the finance minister this week as criticism mounted over the Trump visit. Trump won praise in the media for his diplomacy during the trip, although he did not apologize for his insults against Mexicans and his plans to build a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. But the media saw Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto's hosting of the Republican presidential candidate as bowing to Trump's views. Mexico's president responded to his critics by getting rid of Luis Vidagure, his finance minister. Vidagure had recommended that the president reach out to Trump, and he negotiated the terms of the visit. Polls after Trump's visit showed 85% of Mexicans believed the invitation to the Republican nominee was a mistake. Protesters in Venezuela showed how much they disliked their president this week. They chased him down a street, yelling obscenities at him and banging pots and pans. President Nicolas Maduro was addressing a political meeting on Margarita Island, part of a Venezuelan state in the Caribbean. But protesters broke up the meeting and chased Maduro down a street. Some spectators captured the chase on video from phones. No one was hurt, but Venezuelan authorities arrested 20 people for threatening the president. Venezuela is suffering through frequent food shortages and hyperinflation. 
And now the story of a deadly kiss, or at least its after effects. 17-year-old Julio Macias Gonzalez of Mexico City died this week after suffering convulsions while eating dinner with his family. Medical authorities traced the cause of the death to a hickey. Yes, a hickey his girlfriend had left after an apparently powerful kiss, or love bite, as some prefer to call them. Medical authorities say the hickey caused a blood clot, which traveled to the teenager's brain. That, in turn, caused a deadly stroke. Although unusual, it's not the first time a hickey has caused a stroke. Another cautionary tale of young love. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Canada. Our listening group in Canada was our third largest this past month, behind only our listeners in the United States and Mexico, a real NAFTA audience. So we say thank you very much and merci beaucoup to all of our listeners in Canada and elsewhere around the globe. And now we return to Brazil. As we heard earlier, former President Joma Rousseff officially exchanged places with Michel Temer in the presidential palace this week in Brasilia. But it was also a week marked by protests against Temer, with at least 100,000 turning out in Sao Paulo in protests that turned violent and led to accusations of police brutality. Some want Temer to be impeached and removed from office too, just like Rousseff. His political opponents point to allegations Temer may have violated campaign finance laws and other corruption charges against members of Temer's party, the PMDB. That's the Portuguese acronym for the Brazilian Democratic Movement Party. We asked Matthew Taylor at American University to again lend his expertise to the question of what's next for Brazil. Taylor is the co-editor of Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, The Struggle for Accountability. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Uh, I think the, the big problem facing Michel Temer is that he has um, relatively low levels of legitimacy. Um, most Brazilians polled before the impeachment last week were in favor of impeachment and wanted to see um, Dilma Rousseff removed from office. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily wanted Michelle Temer, who had been her running mate and, and of course, is a representative of the PMDB party, which has been a supporter of Dilma Rousseff and Lula's Workers' Party for the past 13 years. So it's not clear that they wanted Temer, but they definitely didn't want um, Dilma Rousseff. The, the problem that poses for Temer is that he not only doesn't have much support from those who oppose Dilma Rousseff, he also has now the active opposition of the Workers' Party and, and Rousseff's uh, supporters, and they have been quite vocal on the streets, on social media, um, in, in you know arguing that he is an illegitimate president. So uh, he faces an uphill battle uh, trying to regain some legitimacy. One of the reasons he, one of the ways he's tried to get around this is by saying that he is only fulfilling this role in an interim position, uh, and that he'll stay only through the end of the term in 2018. But there's been some second guessing of that, and um, some of his supporters have suggested he might even run for election again uh, in the 2018 presidential elections. Let's take a look backward a bit at, at the end of former President Rousseff. If we could, uh, some of our listeners criticize this program, saying that we have not explored enough the idea that 
the removal process was was actually a parliamentary coup. Do you do you put much stock in in that particular theory? Um, there's even some social media this week that that media in Brazil are debating whether they should be calling this a parliamentary coup that happened, and some media organizations saying um, if you actually believe that. Then, then you should leave our organization. That that what happened was absolutely constitutional. Well, what's your view on that? It's it's going to be a debate that will be ongoing in among Brazilians, among historians for a long, long time. Uh, you know, certainly the pretext for impeachment was a relatively minor violation, a very arcane uh, violation of the fiscal responsibility law. One that the PT, the Workers' Party, argued had never been uh, invoked before, even though past presidents had engaged in similar uh, wrongdoing. So, you know, was it was it unconstitutional? Not not really. The the you had all three branches of government involved in the impeachment debate. Uh, Dilma Rousseff was allowed to present her own defense. Um, and, you know, defend her, her record. Um, it was, however, premised on a relatively minor um, act of malfeasance, although the opposition really tried to show that Dilma Rousseff could have been impeached on a broad range of issues, uh, even though the, this particular impeachment petition was very narrowly based. Uh, of course, Rousseff uh, was the beneficiary of campaign contributions from the Petrobras corruption scandal, one of the most, you know, broadest uh, corruption scandals of recent times in Brazil. Uh, she oversaw the complete collapse of the economy. Um, and most important, and this is very relevant uh, as we think about the course of Brazilian democracy, she lost the support of her coalition. And if you've lost the support of your coalition in Brazil, uh, it's very hard to govern. The only other time that this has happened, uh, really, at, to the degree that it happened under Rousseff, uh, was under Fernando Collor, who was himself also impeached. So this is very much, uh, I think, a warning uh, to future presidents. So I guess the question is, are we done with impeachment for the moment in Brazil? We saw at least 100,000 people over this past weekend come out and, and demonstrate in Sao Paulo. Uh, there have been other demonstrations in Sao Paulo. Um, the president has dismissed this as not being representative of what's going on in, in the country. But yet in the summer, uh, Temer was tied by some to this, this car wash investigation and, and the Petrobras scandal. And um, there's at least some investigation of him going on, is there not? Right. So, you know, I think that there are a couple things going on here. Um, the, the first is that there's an enormous uh, fight underway to establish the narrative of what has happened since the first street demonstrations began in 2013, all the way up through the impeachment. And the narrative of a constitutional coup is extraordinarily useful. I'm not arguing that it's, you know, I'm not arguing one way or another on, on whether it is or isn't uh, a coup, but I just want to point out that instrumentally, the narrative of a coup is extremely useful for the Workers' Party and for the left um, in overcoming some of its, its own failures over the past three years, including the Petrobras scandal, 
turning away attention from the fact that most of the major leaders of the PT, for example, have been implicated in this scandal. Um, it also turns the spotlight on a person who would rather remain in the shadows, Michelle Temer. Um, and, uh, you know, as I've already mentioned, casts doubts on the Temer administration's legitimacy. So I think that, that regardless of the truth of whether there was a constitutional coup here or not, the narrative is here to stay. And the left is likely to keep this drumbeat up for a long, long time. Uh, as a way of turning attention away from its own failings. That, that said, I, I think that um, the debate over impeachment will probably peter out. There's one uncertainty hanging over this debate, though, which is, as you, as you know, the Senate, when it voted on impeachment, took the very strange decision to split the constitutional vote on impeachment into two. And uh, the first vote uh, that they, they took was on whether uh, Dilma Rousseff should be removed from office. But then the second vote was whether she should be punished by having her political rights uh, removed for the next eight years. And in the past impeachment effort uh, against Fernando Collor, uh, the, the letter of the Constitution is very clear that th this is one vote, impeachment and removal of political rights. Um, the Senate, you know, engaged in a little bit of backroom dealing here to split the vote. And so there's some speculation that this may be contested in the courts. Um, and this adds additional uncertainty and uh, casts further doubt on the Temer administration's legitimacy. The, the other thing that's going on is that Temer is, of course, uh, the former vice president to Dilma Rousseff. And his, their joint ticket in 2014 was accused of campaign finance irregularities associated with the campaign donations they received from the Petrobras scandal. And that case is still underway um, in the electoral courts. So you do have these a couple of, of institutional questions that are hanging over Temer. I suspect that the courts, uh, being slow as they are in Brazil, are unlikely to resolve this in the ne in the years, you know, in the coming two or three years before the 2018 elections. Um, but they nonetheless do cast a shadow, a further shadow, over the Temer administration. You mentioned the future for former President Rousseff, and so I wonder because former President Lula, who looked to be the candidate for the PT, for the Workers' Party in 2018, now also being looked at for corruption charges. Are we going to see a return of Rousseff in 2018, or is there a third name that is likely to arise? Nobody has a crystal ball, and I certainly don't. Um, I, at this point, it's really too uncertain to say. Um, the, the allegations against Lula have been um, trickling out for most of the last year. Uh, at this stage, he would still do very well in a first round uh, election. But since Brazil has two rounds, uh, he would likely be defeated by almost any candidate in the second round. Uh, I think that Rousseff would fare even worse if she were to run for presidential office. I do think, though, that we cannot um, ignore the fact that the left, whether it's the PT or other parties of the left in Brazil, consistently uh, polls around 30 percent, 
which means that they are far from a vanquished political force. The PT as a party is exhausted. Uh, the PT as a party is also losing uh, membership uh, at, a, at a very rapid rate. And it looks as though the municipal elections that will take place in October will be uh, a bloodbath for the PT. But that, that's not to say that the left is in any way vanquished. And I think that this is one of the reasons why the narrative of a constitutional coup uh, is so important to the left. We talked about looking at the future for Brazil. And so uh, beyond this very difficult and complex political scene, uh, what else does President Temer have to negotiate? And does he have answers for the Brazilian economic collapse? Well, um, the, the good news, I think, is just that mathematically, Brazil will recover and start to grow again uh, next year. It's very hard for it to continue to decline at the rates that it's declined for the past three years. Uh, Temer, though, is facing a very challenging legislative reform uh, window where he needs to get through some very important fiscal reforms, including a cap uh, that his administration has sought a cap on spending, uh, as well as a, another constitutional amendment for Social Security reform. And those reforms will need to take place in a very narrow window between the municipal elections in October and the beginning of the wide open presidential contest in 2018. So that gives the, the Temer administration at best about 14 months to put through some very uh, challenging and likely to be contentious reforms. Thank you so much. Matthew Taylor of American University, the co-editor of Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, The Struggle for Accountability, joining us on Latin Pulse via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, Fighting Zika, a report from the front lines. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. With the Zika virus making inroads in the United States, as we heard earlier, we thought we were long overdue for an in-depth discussion of the virus and the damage it has wrought throughout Latin America. We discussed the virus with Dr. Reina tercios Reese, an epidemiologist with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. She joined us via long-distance line from Guatemala City, Guatemala, where she's based as part of U.S. efforts to help Latin America combat the disease. So you'll recall that Zika indeed came in through Brazil, or at least the first cases were reported there, but it really has come to affect the broader region of Latin America. That includes all of the countries in Central America and the countries in the Caribbean. So Zika has come to demonstrate for us that a public health threat can really come from anywhere and spread to anywhere. And it depends on us, the ministries of health, and agencies like the World Health Organization and the Pan American Health Organization to help the countries identify these threats, respond to these threats, and try to limit those threats before they become 
much larger. Zika has come to be one of those examples of early detection is difficult, containment needs a lot of work, but we are working through the ministries of health to do this. Can you explain to me what the role of the CDC is there in Guatemala and elsewhere in Central America? Normally, U.S. citizens listening to this would, would be thinking that the CDC is confined to the United States. The CDC began as a domestic agency over 70 years ago. But one of the things that we've learned is that it's really a small world. So in order to protect the health of the American people, we do have to protect the health of all of the world. As our director states, we are only as strong as our weakest link in public health. So a threat of public health in one place is a threat in public health everywhere. CDC since 2004 has developed a site throughout the world, we are number in 10 right now, where we help to do what's called global disease detection. What that means is working with the ministries of health and working with the World Health Organization and other public health agencies in the region to help the country identify public health threats early, respond to them, in an attempt to contain them so that they don't spread much further. The Office in Central America provides support to the ministries of health of eight countries. That is, all the countries south of Mexico, north of Colombia, and including the Dominican Republic that share a common history and common bond. Can you tell us a little bit about the specifics of the outbreak there in Guatemala is it similar to other parts of Central America? Or are there some things that differentiate what is happening for health concerns there? I would have to direct you to the Ministry of Public Health Authorities. Here it's called Ministerio de Salud Pública y Asistencia Social for some of the very specific characteristics of the outbreak. But in general, it's very much what we're seeing in other places. The mosquito that transmits Zika is present. It is biting people who are infected and spreading the disease to others. There is the possibility of the congenital defect known as microcephaly, and there is also the possibility of the neurologic complication called Guillain-Barre. Can you tell us anything about what the advice is from the Ministry of Health to travelers and citizens there in Guatemala? Are there any special things that travelers can do to prevent themselves from catching the disease. Guatemala is one of the countries on a long list of countries that have travel advisories. And there are three things that are really important for our travelers to do. One is protect themselves from mosquito bites. That means using long sleeves on shirts, long pants, using insect repellent, avoiding um, being in places that do not have screens and windows on the doors. If it's a woman who is in reproductive age, that is between 15 and 49 years of age, to make sure that um, appropriate measures, if she's not planning on becoming pregnant, are taken to avoid pregnancy until eight weeks after returning from a country or a place that has Zika virus circulating. And also, it's important 
that if there are any symptoms consistent with Zika, that is fever that's not particularly high, a rash, conjunctivitis or red eye, and joint pain, that she seek medical advice or that the traveler seeks medical advice um, from their local health care provider. On this program some weeks ago, we were reporting on the Zika outbreak in Honduras and noting that there were six deaths linked to it, according to health officials in Honduras, that there had been a reported uptick of birth defects. And so I wonder, is now Honduras the epicenter of the Zika virus concern in Central America, or are there other spots that are equally experiencing equally grave problems? The epicenters of Zika really are wherever there are mosquitoes present. The Ministry of Health of Honduras is one of the ministries that we have supported by providing them with the laboratory reagents so that they can do Zika diagnosis. They would be the best persons to indicate if these numbers of birth defects or of persons with Guillain-Barre are out of proportion with what they usually see. The key here is being able to do diagnosis and having the tools to reduce the number of mosquitoes that are present. And Honduras has been doing that. Many of our listeners are in the United States and are certainly aware that that Zika is spreading through at least parts of Florida specific to Miami. Um, I realize your specialty area right now is Central America, but what in general can you tell those in the United States who have concerns about Zika spreading in the United States? We have very capable teams of researchers and epidemiologists and laboratorians who are addressing this issue domestically. In the sites where Zika has been reported, the same measures that we are recommending for travelers should be implemented. Avoiding mosquito bites, seeking medical care, and making sure that you know if you are pregnant in the case of women so that you can seek medical care appropriately. Without mosquitoes, there is no Zika. So one of the best things that we can do to protect ourselves, our family, and our community is really preventing mosquitoes from hatching. And that's a bit more difficult than we think because the mosquito that transmits Zika is one that lives indoors with us. In a thimble full of water, a female mosquito can lay eggs that will later hatch, and if they bite a person who's infected, and after a period of time bite someone who's not infected, will effectively transmit the disease. So getting rid of the mosquito is the single most important thing that we can do to prevent As someone who has traveled quite a bit in Central America, when I think about mosquitoes, I certainly think about mosquito protection when I travel in that region. Um, But I wonder if if, um, reducing the amount of mosquitoes or eradicating mosquitoes is is realistic in in that region, given the rainforest that we see in some some parts and in the rural areas. You raise a really good point, which highlights the fact that these are complementary measures that we do. Reducing the mosquito populations goes hand in hand with preventing mosquito bites at an individual level. And I think we briefly talked about the importance of the use of mosquito repellent 
and the use of physical measures, screen doors on windows and doors, using long sleeves, long pants. Whenever we think we're going to go into an area that has mosquitoes, as you've pointed out, into a beautiful rainforest that we have many of in Central America. Thank you so much, Dr. Reina Tercios-Reese, our guest today on Latin Pulse. She is an epidemiologist for the Centers for Disease Control, working in Guatemala City, joining us from Guatemala City via Long Distance Line. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, and have a happy, healthy day. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.